Let me just say before I get started, many of you know that I am a proud alum of a little red schoolhouse in Atlanta, Georgia, known as Morehouse College. All fields of human endeavor, Morehouse has contributed incredible, successful men. You name it, religion, Howard Thurman, Martin Luther King Jr., politics, Mena Jackson, Jay Johnson, medicine, David Satcher, Lewis Sullivan, education, Professor Ron Sullivan or Professor Willie on this campus, Hollywood, Samuel L. Jackson, Spike Lee, And it causes a certain level of pride among its alums. I guess that's why they say you can always tell a Morehouse man, but you can't tell him much. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just saying that this morning because as I look across the congregation, I'm so happy to see the past president of Morehouse College, John S. Wilson, here with us this morning, President Wilson. Harvard Overseer, it's so good to see you this morning here and worship with us. Mark chapter 1, verses 22 through 24. They were astounded at his teaching, for he, Jesus, taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And the man cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. Unclean spirit cried out. With your prayers and the Holy Spirit's power, I want to speak this morning a few minutes from the topic, the inconvenience of truth. The inconvenience of truth. This semester, I am teaching a course entitled Martin, Malcolm, and Masculinity. The course aims to examine the religious orientations and political philosophies of both Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. The course intends to bring the category of gender into our field of analysis alongside the traditional categories of race and class. And the course hopes to unpack the ways masculine performance both enabled and frustrated the public ministries of these towering 20th century intellectuals. Now my friends, it's difficult to discuss the intersections of race, class, and gender in American society and ignore the powerful and productive insights of the literary great James Baldwin. 
in February 1961, Baldwin published a probing piece on the interior life of the Montgomery-based preacher in Harper's Magazine. The article was entitled, The Dangerous Road Before Martin Luther King, Jr. And here, Baldwin presciently and prophetically describes the dimensions of King's moral character that will bring him the most trouble. Baldwin's findings. Baldwin's findings did not point to salacious gossip or known rivalries within the civil rights movement. Baldwin's warnings had little to do with King's clinical depression or confirmed FBI dalliances. But rather, Baldwin points this out about King. He was a man who had the audacity to tell the truth clearly and consistently. Oh, like most then, quote-unquote, Negro leaders, King did not have a message, one message for African Americans and another message for whites. Baldwin says King did not have one message for the poor and another message for those in power. King had moral courage. King had moral clarity. King possessed moral consistency. And this, more than anything, according to Baldwin, would lead to his ultimate demise. For King's constant truth-telling was inconvenient for the white power structure, as well as for the black bourgeois establishment. His truth-telling was inconvenient for those who preferred power over principle. My brothers and sisters, we see a similar scenario in today's gospel lesson. The author of Mark juxtaposes the teaching of Jesus over against the teachings of the scribes. In contrast to traditional religious leaders in the synagogue, Mark tells us that Jesus taught as one with authority. Unlike the traditional religious leaders, Jesus taught with candor and clarity. And unlike traditional religious leaders, when Jesus spoke, demons came out of the woodwork in attempts to silence him. Oh. This latter point, that's an interesting point here. Because when we look at the other synoptic gospels, both Matthew and Luke, we have a clear sense of what it was that Jesus was teaching. And Jesus was not teaching anything new per se. To the contrary, Jesus' greatest strength was his ability to revive the ethical teachings of the law and of the prophets. We know what Jesus taught. Oh, use your Holy Ghost imaginations with me in here, and let's take flight back to first century common era. I can see Jesus walking into the synagogue and opening up the scroll to Exodus, the 22nd chapter and the 21st verse. 
And with crystal clear homiletic elocution and clarity of conviction, Jesus declared, you shall not mistreat or oppress an immigrant, for you were once immigrants in the land of Egypt. And then Jesus turned to Psalm 82 and Jesus read, give justice to the weak and the orphan, maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. We know what Jesus taught. I can see Jesus flipping over to the prophet Amos and calling out governmental corruption. Woe unto those who trample the head of the poor into the dust and earth and push the afflicted out of the way. Luke chapter 4 even records Jesus' trial sermon in the synagogue. Jesus steps in and like the Beatitudes in Matthew, he inverts the social power structure. Jesus opens up the scroll to the prophet Isaiah and it reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free. We know what Jesus taught. This is why, because we know what Jesus taught. This is why the interesting question for me is not a matter of what Jesus was teaching in Capernaum, but rather the more important question is, why was it such a surprise in the first place? What had the sages been teaching the people? If Jesus' voice sounded so fresh and unique just by telling the truth of the Jewish tradition, what conclusions can we infer about the sages, about the traditional religious leaders? Clearly, they weren't teaching hospitality toward the stranger. Clearly, they were not preaching about care for the poor. Clearly, they were not calling out governmental corruption, nor were they inverting the social order. More importantly, if you look at this story, whatever the sages were preaching in the synagogue, we know one thing. It kept the unclean spirit silent. They're preaching kept the unclean spirits feeling safe and satisfied. Oh, woe unto the preacher. Woe unto the preacher who is so deceitful and duplicitous, so devious and disingenuous, so dishonest and dishonorable, and that even the unclean spirits find peace in your presence. Woe unto the minister who's so cowardly and contemptible, so cowering and cow-hearted, so caitiff and craven that demonic spirits even seek you out for cover and counsel. Oh, my friends, this is how I feel each week when watching so-called evangelical leaders make one excuse after another for behavior that we all know to be unrighteous and reprehensible. 
Oh, this week, for instance, the leader of Liberty University took time to type a telling tweet. Jerry Falwell Jr. tweeted, he tweeted this, and I quote, Jesus said to love our neighbors as ourselves, but Jesus never told Caesar how to run Rome. He never said Roman soldiers should turn the other cheek in battle or that Caesar should allow the barbarians to become Roman citizens, end quote. Now, as difficult and despicable as this might be, let's try to bracket Falwell's use of the term barbarian to allude to undocumented immigrants for a second. And I know that's asking a lot. But that tweet calls me to think about something, Alana. This is Jerry Falwell Jr., the son of Jerry Falwell Sr., the same Falwell family who have a history of complaining to Caesar about John and Jack falling in love with one another, the same Falwell family who lobby Caesar about what medical procedures Jane can elect for her own body. The same Falwell family who petitioned Caesar to exempt them from having to hire anyone who identifies as non-Christian or LGBTQ. Yet when it comes to the poor, and when it comes to welcoming the stranger, two things that we know Jesus was most clear about in the gospel, all of a sudden Christians can't say a mumbling word. We're supposed to become cowardly and conniving. Oh, we don't want to bother you, Caesar. We'll just keep praying and minding our own business while you run the empire. We'll just keep coming to church and singing our hymns while the empire exploits, discriminates, divides, and equivocates. We won't bother you, Caesar. Friends, let me say this. To all of the preachers out there, if your sermons can allay the conscience of the corrupt and justify the practices of the unjust, then you need to rethink what the hell you're preaching. And to all of the Christians in this country listening to this sermon, whether on the radio, online, or on SoundCloud. If you attend a church and your preacher cannot call out unequivocally white supremacy and the alt-right, denounce unapologetically the racist descriptions of the continent of Africa and country of Haiti, and proclaim unashamedly that we seek to defend democracy, not placate a plutocracy, then I have news for you. You are not a member of a church. You are a member of a political brothel. For your preachers have prostituted themselves and the gospel for the cheap price of political access and power. Ah. I can imagine that this is why Jesus showed up to Capernaum. 
I'm sure Jesus heard the evil spirits had infected the community. I'm sure Jesus, he realized that lying and lecture had laced the congregation. I'm sure Jesus realized that trickery and trumpery were testing the faith. Thus, Jesus shows up with the vocal cords of virtue and the tongue of truth. And in a place where people maintain a conspiracy of silence. President Wilson, in a place where people protect and maintain a conspiracy of silence, one word of truth can sound like a cannon blast. So Jesus shows up, and he shows up in the synagogue to replace deceit with candor to replace falsehood with frankness, vice with virtue, and duplicity with principle. Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, all of the evil spirits jump up and begin to lash out. We know what you're trying to do. We know who you are, Jesus, and you will not replace us. Yet Jesus just kept on preaching. And he exercised the unclean spirit. For Jesus knew that she who speaks truth stabs falsehood right through the heart. That's why on this morning I want you to walk out of here remembering the words of James Russell Lowell. Truth forever on the scaffold. Wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above God's own. That's the power of truth, my friends. And when we speak the truth, even demons have to bow down before.